please turn in your Bibles tonight to Luke chapter 18. Luke 18, and tonight just three verses, verses 15 through 17. Let's all stand together to hear the word of God. Luke 18, 15. Then they also brought infants to Jesus that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter into it. Amen. Please be seated. We need to continually be ready to adjust our thinking according to God's word. I know there's been a fair amount of debate over whether children should be allowed into the church or not as members of the visible body of Christ. But you see in the third century, beginning of the third century, 200 AD, we sang a hymn from Clement of Alexandria that allowed for children in the church. The debate at that time was whether or not to allow children to take the Lord's Supper. Clement of Alexandria in 200 AD entered into that debate somewhat. So there was something of a debate over the age of children receiving the Lord's Supper, but whether children would be allowed to be baptized into the church as infants, as nursing infants, was never a debate in the church until Henry of Lausanne, who shows up in about 1300 AD. So the church really never had much of a debate on that issue for 1300 years. I believe that church history should play a part in our hearts and our minds as we consider uh, these things. So it's good to know about church history. But I, I, do, I do think there's a lot of theology that doesn't take into account the Bible. Now, I say that because all of us should be aware that we take preconceived ideas to Scripture. We do it all the time, whether it be in minor issues or perhaps at times more major things. We need to ask ourselves from time to time whether or not we take into account the teachings of Jesus in our theology. This has to do with whether something's missing, whether there's a lack of proper emphasis, or whether there's just plain bad teaching going on in the ministry. So whatever the case, we need to go back to the Word of God all the time and just simply ask ourselves, was there a missing piece? I think that happens in our devotional life, doesn't it? We're reading a part of the Gospel of Luke, or we're in Ephesians, and we think, I have not seen that before. In fact, that showed up in the book of Genesis for me. I'm sharing that with Neil this week. I'd never seen it before. I've even done a study guide on it, and now I feel embarrassed that I published a study guide and really didn't identify something really critical that was there in, I think it was Genesis chapter 22 or something like that. So we find these things, you know, and we bring them back into our way of thinking about the Christian faith, and that's all right. The scriptures are surprising to us. What the Bible actually says is sometimes a shocker. And I think this passage really does fit into that. Scriptures are always challenging us to change our minds, to stop imposing our preconceived notions, our cultural viewpoints, our bad theologies, but to receive what the Scriptures actually said. 
So oftentimes we miss the point. And I think that one of the reasons for that is because we're coming to the Word of God and our minds have been somewhat corrupted by the fall. Talk about the, the noetic effects of the fall. That means that the fall affected our minds. And so we have clear biblical truth meeting a mind that's been affected by the fall probably going to have some issues. We're going to need some illumination of the Holy Spirit to really understand what God has to communicate to us. And so it's okay to be wrong and then to be corrected by the Word of God. So that's all, all right. It's my contention when it comes to this matter of children in the Christian church that we're not covenantal enough. In fact, I would say that Presbyterians are not covenantal enough. I met some PCUSA guys, had some conversations with them. I'll come to the conclusion they're not covenantal enough. Same thing with the PCA and the OPC and sometimes even our denomination. I think sometimes we're just not covenantal enough. And we need to understand what the Bible means when it talks about covenantal theology. It's interesting, we've had several lessons on this the last couple of weeks. For some reason, church leaders and certain theological systems get in the way of children coming to Jesus and entering the kingdom of God. And this is the warning that Jesus brings us here tonight. So let's pay attention to it. Is there any way in which the disciples or apostles or today's leaders are getting in the way of children coming to Jesus? Here these moms or dads were bringing infants to Jesus. The word is brephos, that's nursing infants. It's the technical Greek word for children who are still nursing. So these are infants. These aren't little four-year-olds, not 14 years old. They're, they're nursing infants coming to Jesus, and Jesus is blessing them, and he says, of such is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. So we have to ask ourselves, are there any ways in which we are getting in the way of children coming to Jesus? Sometimes our church institutions become extremely complex. Sometimes we have too many programs. Sometimes we're putting children in situations where they shouldn't be placed in those situations. Sometimes we're not encouraging parents or exhorting them or equipping them to do the work that God has called them to do and displacing parents with the programs, making it more complex than it needs to be. God has specifically given parents the obligation, the responsibility, the daily responsibility to raise their children, the nurture and the admonition of Jesus. And oftentimes church institutions take that place. And that would be an instance in which I think we're getting in the way of God's means of grace that he has established for children coming to Jesus. The church sometimes loses sight of the basic trunky gospel such that the gospel doesn't speak to the children or to others as well. For that matter. So we have to be careful that somehow our systems aren't becoming so complex or we're dealing with polemics too much or we're, we're dealing with some of the finer details of the Christian faith or we're off on some tangent such that we're not able to convey the real gospel to our children and that is that we're sinners and we need Jesus and he came to die on the cross for our sins so that we can follow him and our sins will be forgiven. Well, the children are oftentimes shuffled into systems of learning that contradict a biblical perspective. We talk about that as well. What happens when children are taken to the public schools, which they're given the wrong worldview? Well, I think the end result is they're just confused. And, and that's best case. Worst case is they actually get discipled by the wrong people and then believe, believe the wrong things. 
and become humanists or atheists as they proceed in their education. So there are ways in which we're stumbling children. We're getting in the way of children. Also, let me include the anger of parents or hypocrisy of parents or the control freakiness of parents. What are we conveying to our children when we're so controlling them, so trying to change their hearts and be the Holy Spirit or or we get angry and we, we're trying to control their behavior externally and not relying so much upon the work of the Holy Spirit of God within them. What's the theological system you're conveying to your children there? That is, mom and dad are sovereign, God's not, and that's just the wrong worldview. Right? I mean, so there are ways in which we convey the wrong teaching to our children. We need to be cautious about these sorts of things. The hesitation to speak of Jesus in the home. Now, I know this is odd, but I do believe this creeps in to some homes. I think it's creeped into our home from time to time, where we're not speaking of the gospel very much. We're not speaking of Jesus very much. Now, it's interesting that, you know, we do that in church. We do that in relationships with others and Bible studies and other things like that. But what, what happens in terms of our real confession, our real faith, is going to be manifest in our marriage, in our family relationships, right? The real you shows up in the day-to-day interactions. So I I think one of the questions we need to ask ourselves is, do we really believe in Jesus? Is Jesus the most important person in our lives? You know, is he the king? Is he our shepherd, our prophet, our priest, our sacrifice, our salvation? You know, is that it? And are we conveying that day by day to our children, or are we saying something different in the home than we would in the context of the church? So these are some of the things that I would throw out as, as ways in which we're getting in the way of our children coming to Jesus. And we don't want that to happen. Amen, brothers and sisters? So remove every obstacle in the way of children. Remove every obstacle in the way of children coming to Jesus. Now, I want to take up a well-known book on raising children in Christian homes. I'm not going to give you the title of the author, but I do, I do want to give you some of the quotes from uh, this pastor who has written on children professing faith, children following Jesus, children being disciple. Here's, here's what he says. Children are not disciples of Jesus. That's what he says. Not one child was discipled in the book of Acts. So you're not discipling your children in your home until 15, 16, 17, 18 years of age when they might profess faith in Christ. Now that's, I would say, the predominant view of children in churches across America today. But here's my answer, and I'm just going to interact with this a little bit. And yes, this will be a little bit polemical tonight. It's really hard to know a fruit-bearing plant in your family or church for many years. Not one child discipled in the book of Acts. Well, what are we responsible to do? We as parents and as pastors are responsible for planting seeds and watering. It's God who brings forth the increase. And to me, that's the most basic principle in relation to discipleship of our children or discipleship within the church. 
A, f- a farmer cannot walk out into the field and identify which plant will bear fruit in two years from now, or three years from now, or four years from now, or four months from now, whatever the growing cycle happens to be. He, he is not able to do it. He can't do it. It's impossible. Now, we read from this popular book, again, when your child says, I believe in Jesus, do not take this profession on face value. If you ask a child, are you willing to follow Jesus? He may say yes, but to accept that is reckless and inexcusable because children are fickle, ignorant, and easily deceived. When they are asked about their confession of faith, what they really believe, they don't know what to say. Now, how do we interact with that? What would Jesus say to that? Let me draw your attention to verse 16 and 17 of our text tonight. Jesus called them to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. I'm finding worldviews clashing here. Does anybody else sense there's... Some contradiction going on here. Yes, I agree that children are fickle, ignorant, easily deceived, but children in Christian homes are holy. That's what 1 Corinthians 7 tells us. So let's just go to the data here. What is the scripture telling us in relation to children? And one of the best things to do is just look up children in your concordance and go through every reference to children throughout scripture. And what you find is that children belong to Jesus. Children are a holy seed. Children are holy to God. They belong to Christ. This is what you find. These are definitions. Children in Christian homes are planted in the soil. They have the best shot at germination because they are planted in the soil. God has already blessed them by his promises. Jesus blesses them by his touch, by his intercession, by his blessings. Now, I don't think it's helpful to doubt your children's profession of faith or expressions of faith. I just don't think it's healthy to do that. Whether these expressions are saving faith or not, we don't know. But to doubt it is not the right response as a parent. That's what we're saying. You may only know with 99.9% certainty that they are true believers and they have saving faith when they're 29 years of age. What are you going to do? Wait till they're 29 to baptize them? But let us remain hopeful. I believe there are two ditches in relation to your children. On the one is presumption, where you presume everything's okay and you have no responsibility to plant seeds in water. Okay, that's just presumption. That's the farmer who sits out saying, oh, you know what, I'm not going to plant seed. God is sovereign. We'll see how I get, if I get any corn this year. Well, a, a, a passing crow might just drop a corn seed and he'll get a little corn, you know, by God's providence. But that's not a really good way to get corn. See, so the, we use the means that God has provided. We, 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 we can't be presumptuous in that way. We can't be lazy. In that. One way to say that is a faithless slothfulness that doesn't really, in faith, want to engage the work. That's just presumption and slothfulness. On the other side is this sort of doubtful, faithless, I don't think you're going to turn out at all. Well, you know, I don't believe any of your professions. You know, I just don't receive anything you're telling me, kid. Until you know the Westminster Shorter Catechism, you can distinguish your justification, sanctification, forget it. I don't think that's the right response either. 
that to me is faithless as well. So you have a form of faithlessness over on this side. You've got a form of faithlessness over on this side. What I recommend for parents is faith and hope. As you teach, as you pray, as you discuss your children's situation at 10 o'clock at night, and yes, you're a little down in the mouth about it, I still encourage faith and hope and love for your children as you discuss your children's situation. It doesn't matter if it's 19 years old or 9 years old. But approach the raising of children with faith, gripping onto the promises, praying the promises, believing and hoping the very best for your children. So that's uh, my recommendation. Let's remain hopeful. We may not see dramatic conversion experiences, but you don't find this in Scripture. You don't find this necessity to identify the exact point of regeneration. That's the kind of thing that was very popular in the 1960s. My mother wrote the, the day in which I was four years old and I gave my heart to Jesus and made my first profession. Great. Praise God. There were about 17 other professions over the next three years, you know, but uh, <coughs> you say, well, which, which one is real? Well, what point was he really converted? Where was he really regenerated? Oh, we don't know. The Spirit blows where he wills. You see the effects of it over time, but you're not going to know. You don't have an R that appears on his forehead uh, as he is regenerated. That kind of thing doesn't happen. We may not know the exact point of regeneration. People are baptized in the Bible when heads of households receive the word. Speaking of men and brethren addressed in Acts 2. The whole Acts 2 passage is directed to men and brethren. In Acts chapter 4, they counted 5,000 men that were introduced to the church, but didn't mention the women in that case. So you have so many instances in which the heads of the household and the men are counted, and they are baptized, and they're hearing the message, and they're being told to repent, they receive the word, and then you have many other instances in which the entire families were brought into the church. But the point I want to make is that there wasn't any kind of a genuine profession of faith required, some intensive inquiry. This is the kind of thing that's impressed upon us in these books, that as pastors we have to have intense inquiries as to whether or not this is a genuine profession of faith before we bring them into the discipleship program uh, that is involved post-baptism. All the baptisms that I find in the scriptures occur on the spot. They preach the gospel, Ethiopian eunuch, they baptize him immediately. There isn't some long, oh, we'll wait for six months and see, see if it's really, you know, some fruits of repentance in your life. There's none of that. They've received the word. They seem happy with what they heard. They get baptized and they move on with the discipleship program. That's the way the scriptures speak of baptism. Very clear. These guys heard the word of God, a 20-minute sermon. They'll make that about a, I don't know, eight-minute sermon. They get baptized. 3,000 of them all at one do- time. Phenomenal. Same thing with a Philippian jailer and so forth. These baptisms occur on the spot. There isn't some intense requirement for a genuine profession of faith. There are only three imperatives in Scripture concerning baptism. The rest of it is indicative. I mean, it's just examples of what they did in that situation. But in terms of imperative, what do we find? We find in the Great Commission, baptize them and then go teach them. Step one, baptize. Step two, teach. That's it. Now, my encouragement is don't baptize somebody who doesn't want to be baptized. You know, don't just go down to Walmart and start pulling people out of Walmart and hosing them down. Don't do that. That's not right. But, but what, what does the Scriptures tell us? Baptize them. Bring them into the discipleship program if they're signing up for it. If they receive the word in the first eight-minute sermon, okay, they receive the word. Good. Good start. Let's baptize you and get you into the discipleship program. We may have to excommunicate you later. 
as we did with Simon the Sorcerer. Uh, so the Great Commission puts baptism before teaching. Acts 22.16 puts baptism before the confession of faith and the remission of sins. Very unusual. The Holy Spirit didn't have the order all straightened out. Didn't read his systematic theologies very well before he laid that one out. Acts 22, another imperative. Doesn't make a big deal about the order of baptism. And yet it's made, become a huge deal. A huge controversy. In so many church communities today, not good. And then of course Acts 2.38 the men are told, repent and be baptized. Repent of your rejecting the word, receive the word, be baptized, and let's get on with the discipleship program. Okay, so that's just what the word of God says about baptism, the imperatives given to us in the book of Acts. There's only three of them. The major question before us here, though, is are, are you willing to be discipled in the message that you've heard? That's, that's the major issue. Now, children in Christian homes are disciples, I know I've impressed that upon this congregation many times. But I just think it's wrong to conclude that our children will not be disciples until they manifest some kind of profession of faith that is deemed to be authentic by certain people. I, I don't find that in Scripture. I just don't find it there. Children in Christian homes are disciples. You know, what's really interesting is none of these verses appeared in this book written for Christian families who are raising children. That was just shocking. Ephesians 6.4, Ephesians 6.4, the locus classicus. I mean, the absolute most important principle for Christian families, as far as I could tell, was not included in this entire book on raising children in Christian homes. Ephesians 6.4, these saints... You say, saints, yes, holy ones. They're called holy ones. If the mom is a believer, dad is not a believer, they're still holy. They're still saints. These little saints, these holy ones, are to be brought up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord Jesus Christ. That sounds like a disciple to me. Does anybody else agree? It sounds exactly what a disciple is. Somebody being brought up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Ephesians 6.4, I, I think, is it. This hard and fast line between evangelism and discipleship and the mind of the evangelical is just wrong. And I think this is the fundamental issue. This is one reason why I don't talk about discipleship. I mean, I don't talk about baptism very much. What I like to talk about is soteriology. I think the soteriology of the average evangelical is misplaced. There's something wrong with it. There's something fundamentally wrong with the evangelical view of soteriology. I, I just finished a book on this where I'm trying, to, I'm trying to interact with these, these questions somewhat. Evangelicals are just wrong in this construct, this soteriological view of Scripture, especially as it's applied to child raising. Here's another example, reading from this book. We're told, learning righteous conduct is a predominant aim for the child, whether or not there is faith. No, 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 I, I disagree. Not obedience predominant. Faith and obedience is predominant. Well, I'm going to teach my kid to be obedient. Forget faith. I just want obedience out of you, kid. 
I don't think so. That is so misplaced. That is so wrong. That is theologically wrong, wrong, wrong. We teach our children to be obedient without faith, a faithless obedience. That's not it. That's not the goal. That's not what we're after for the two-year-old any more than the 20-year-old. Brothers and sisters, I think it's faith-based obedience. We don't want obedience without faith, obedience without Jesus. The separation of the two in the discipleship of children in the home has been fatal in evangelical homes. It will produce hypocrisy, self-righteous obedience, legalism, or antinomianism. You're going to wind up in one ditch or the other. When you separate faith and obedience, you will be a legalist on the one side, or you're going to be an antinomian on the other. It'll be one or the other. Why? Because of the separation of faith and obedience in the paideia of the child. Whether the disciple has been converted yet or regenerated yet is so unknown. We, we don't know what's going on under the soil. We don't have x-rays to watch the germination process. We just don't. And yet the teaching must remain the same. What is it? Come to Jesus. Believe in Jesus. We're looking for faith-based obedience, not just external compliance programmed by positive and negative reinforcements. Let me say that one more time. The teaching is the same. Here it is. Come to Jesus. Believe in Jesus. We are looking for faith-based obedience, not just external compliance programmed by positive and negative reinforcements. Now, I I realize this is a minority opinion in evangelicalism. I'm probably the only guy living in this county that teaches this. But let's be realistic about professions of faith. And I think most pastors would agree on this fact. As you watch people growing up in the church, or those getting converted and baptized in the church over 30, 40 years, I believe what you can say for sure is this. There are false believers among children and adults alike. And not like there's more with the children than the adults. I understand that churches are a little funny about, you know, allowing anybody in the church who might not be an absolutely true, genuine believer. But guys, there is no way. We don't know the hearts of men. I, I will tell you that from 30 years of being involved on sessions. It's just impossible. Jesus knew the hearts of men. We don't. That's a huge difference. Nobody's going to say for sure. And I don't think anybody bats better than 120 identifying which profession is true and which is false. The people you thought would never make it wind up making it. I mean, I think of a particular family where the, the, the kid that was most unlikely to make it turned out to be the most godly. I'm like, who would have thought? And then the kids that were like the goody two-shoes and you're thinking, they're going to turn out really good. They're going south. I've seen this so many times. It's impossible to know, guys. You're just not going to know. Some, some people you thought were doing great. They, they wind up not bearing the fruit, or the fruit that looked like it was just getting started begins to rot away. And don't forget this. This is very important, I think, to answer the question of whether or not our children can be considered disciples of Jesus. Let me ask you this question. I think Judas was a disciple. Yes, he was, definitively so. 
Judas is called a disciple of Jesus in Matthew 10, 1, Matthew 11, 1, Luke 6, 13. Judas is referred to as a disciple of Jesus. Jesus picked 12 disciples. He, he, he called them all disciples. And Judas is a disciple. So let me ask you this. Are all of our children raised in a Christian home, selected by God, by the way, to be in our homes, considered disciples of Jesus Christ in each of our homes? Absolutely. I agree. But our response to our children's trust in Jesus must be hopeful, optimistic, faith-filled, always relying upon the Holy Spirit of God to complete the work. So let's not be pessimistic pastors and parents concerning wherever the sprouts are showing up in the field. Plant them in the soil. Plant your children in the soil. The means of grace is more than an intellectual exercise. The means of grace is bringing your children into accessibility to the flow of grace. It places them under the fountain. These are means by which the Holy Spirit does work. He works through the word. He works through water. He works through the table. The farmer plants the seeds and waters the seeds. He brings the seed into close contact with the soil. There's a mysterious internal spiritual working that plays off the external exercise of the means of grace. When the seed comes in contact with decent soil prepared by the Holy Spirit of God, something miraculous takes place, yet we're not in control of the miracle. But we are in control of what? Of, of bringing the seed in proximate connection with the soil itself. But again, you, you understand that th- these are the means of grace. And, and we, are, we, we are engaging an organic process in which we're still relying on God to bring it about. No, no farmer can say, hey, I germinate the plants. God still does that. But it's the farmer that brings the seed into close contact with the soil. And that's what we're doing as parents. As we bring our children to the word, we bring our children to the water, and we bring our children to the table. And we pray the promises of God over them. So brothers and sisters, let's bring, do everything we can to bring our children to Jesus. Get your children as close to Jesus as you can, which means you're close to Jesus when you bring your children to the visible church. Why? Because the visible church is the visible body of Jesus. That's bringing them into very close contact. That's as close as you can get. Now again, being a member of a visible church doesn't mean they're regenerated. We've already discussed that. Judas wasn't regenerated. But it does bring them into close contact with Jesus, and that's key. That's absolutely key. I believe that includes the communion table, and that we can have discussions on that offline as to what the age is and so forth. But do everything you can to bring your children to Jesus. If your teenage son's taking the table, but you see a rise of sexual sin, divisiveness, as described in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, these are leavenous sins. So what do we do? We may not initially conclude he's not a believer, but the young man may have to pull back from the table. And again, this also does not mean that we avoid warnings for our children. We find the book of Proverbs has a fair number of warnings. Yes, we, we warn them. We encourage them from time to time to make sure of their calling and election. When there's a long-term hardness of heart and a dug-in stubborn disobedience, we might say, you know, we have less reason to believe that you are trusting in Christ and following him and truly going to heaven. Don't go that way, son. That's the way to hell. Repent and believe the gospel today. I've been telling you this since you were a child. And I'm going to keep telling you this. Repent and believe the gospel. And keep on repenting and keep on believing the gospel. That's the message that we give as parents and pastors. 
Oh, let's move on. We don't have much more time, but let's move on. Infants can very well make up the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus is saying here. This means that they will either be a part of the visible church or actually regenerated believing members of the kingdom of God. It could be either one. But whatever the case, what we're reading here is these infants, that is these nursing infants, can be members of the kingdom of God. Again, I read from the popular book on children raised in Christian homes. Here's one more. Quote, children are naive. Their judgment is shallow. Decisions to follow Jesus must be made at an adult level. Children lack the maturity of mind to understand the choices they make. I disagree. I disagree. I don't think these statements inspire faith in parents. And they're not in tune with these words of Jesus here. I believe that the power of the Holy Spirit can enter a child as much as an adult. John the Baptist being an example, as well as others in Scripture. Richard Wormbrand tells a story. I got to thinking of that. I was reading this book. He's like, oh, only adults really have that commitment to lay down their life for Jesus. You know, children can't do that. I'm thinking, what about that story in Tortured for Christ? You all remember the story of the 14-year-old? 14-year-old in a Romanian communist prison being tortured in the presence of his father, who was a pastor. He's being whipped and whipped to, to death, and the, the pastor's about ready to give in to the communists. The father says, Alexander, my son, I, I must say what they want me to say now. I can't bear your beating anymore. The son responds, Father, don't do me the injustice to have a traitor as a parent. Withstand, Dad. If they kill me, I will die with the words, Jesus, on my lips. And here's what we read. The communist, enraged, fell on the child and beat him to death with blood spattered over the wall of his cell. He died praising God. And and these evangelicals are going to tell me that a child can't commit his life to Jesus. I don't buy it. I do not buy it. No way. What are the theologians going to say about that? Children too ignorant. Children can't express saving faith. They can't consider the future ramifications of their decisions. They can't comprehend the nature of justification, adoption, sanctification, etc., etc. Yeah, but this boy can stand for Jesus given the ramifications of his own death while his father was about to give in. These, these people don't understand the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant age. They're not getting it. Children in the New Covenant age have more of a right to covenant participation in the church than children in the Old Testament. Why? Because the Spirit of God is poured out and the promise is still to, to us and to our children. Acts chapter 2, the, the Joel promise absolutely applies to, to Acts chapter 2 and to our churches today. What does Jesus say about infants, very young children? Of such is the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because ultimately, we are committed to the fact that this is the work of God. God is sovereign. The Holy Spirit blows where he wills. And David experienced infant faith while in his mother's womb. That's Psalm 22. The theologians can scratch their heads all day long trying to figure out how in the world can the brain cells of a child develop enough to know that God created them to believe in him with the faith that God gives them? How, how do they... I don't care. I'm just reading Psalm 22, and David is holding on to God from his mother's womb. That's what I'm reading. So, brothers and sisters, 
let's not limit God. His ability to work in one-year-old, two-year-olds, three-year-olds, four-year-olds in our congregation. Perhaps the four-year-olds will prophesy this time around. And I think we're entering a period of time right now where this, some of our young children are expressing more faith than their own parents. I don't think the example from Richard Wormbrand is that odd. I, I actually have seen that. I've, I've got some real encouragement from young children. My wife says she spends more time fellowshipping with the young children than the rest of you guys. She's encouraged. She was talking to some of your children up front here about 2.30 this afternoon. She was having a good time of fellowship with your children. Praise God, huh? Praise God. So Jesus builds his kingdom on infants and children. Matthew chapter 18, Jesus puts it this way. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Why is this? What is it? In other words, Jesus isn't just saying of such is the kingdom of heaven. He says the rest of you better start acting like this guy. That's interesting. So what do we, how do we respond to this? Well, a child is aware of his smallness. I mean, look at the little two-year-olds crawling around the floor. All they see are socks and shoes of very big people. And maybe kneecaps. And that's about it. They know they're small. Now, I think that's essential for us too, brothers and sisters. Adults tend to forget this, but Brothers and sisters, we are very small. Mount Everest, bigger than you. You should climb a 14er sometime, and there are things bigger than you on this earth. Doesn't it humble you? Anybody climbed a 14er? It's got to be humbling. Like those, things, those mountains will beat you to death. I mean, they're, they're hard, they're high, they're, they're big. You are tiny. You're just these tiny little people. And not, not much difference between a child's height and adult's height when compared to Mount Everest. And that hasn't changed our size in rel- relation to the galaxies or to God either. Maturity is still important in our knowledge. But here, and this is a point that's made often, like children need to get to know more. Okay, so a child knows this much. How much do I know? There you go. Thank you, sister. Yeah, about, well, I... A little less, about like that. That's my point. We don't know that much. And so there should be a humility about what we know. Even as we grow in knowledge, we should grow in humility. Only because the more we know, the more we realize we don't know. We need to be children in terms of our understanding of our understanding. Do you follow me? Children understand that their understanding is not like their parents' understanding. But we need to understand our own understanding as well that is nothing close to the things that God understands. Proud intellectual theologians are foolish. They have abandoned wisdom. The kingdom of God is populated by the meek, the humble, the beggars. Those who are part of the kingdom of Jesus Christ should see themselves as children. How do we receive the kingdom of heaven as children? We do it in humility. Children are humble. Children are also not questioning the truthfulness of what Jesus tells them. They don't resist what's told them. Children are told about Santa Claus, or they're told the moon is made of cheese. And you know what? They believe it. It's an amazing thing about children. You, you, you tell a child, the moon is made out of cheese. Children, this is not true. 
But if we were to tell a child that the moon is made out of cheese, and you take a really, really long fork, you get a good chunk of that, and put it on your sandwich, you know what? There are children, and I'm a, almost every child would receive that. Children believe. Children trust adults. We need to trust Jesus. Children believe promises until they've been broken a hundred times. But God doesn't break his promises. So as adults, we become jaded, disinterested. Adults hold grudges, harbor fears, stay angry. Generally, children don't. Adults refuse to forgive. Adults remember slights. Generally, children are forgiving. Adults lose hope because their hopes have been dashed, destroyed. So many times, children are positive. Children are optimistic. Children recover quickly. Children are trusting. And here's one more thing as we end tonight. Here's one more thing to take with you. Because we want to be children. Amen, brothers and sisters? We want to be just like these little children in these senses that we be part of this kingdom. And here it is. Here's the last thing. Children are okay with people calling them little children. They are. Like, yeah, we are little children. You know what? Jesus calls us little children. And so does John in his, in his epistles. My little children. We're little children. I don't know. Maybe we should start calling each other. Hey, little children. Little child. Hey, little child, come here. Maybe we should refer to each other as little children. Now, I guess my question is this. Are you okay with that? Amen. Amen. Such, such is the kingdom of heaven. That's it. Let's pray. Our Father, so much to learn. Oh God, I feel like I've just barely scratched the surface on this material. We are indeed little children. We don't understand these things. Father, please teach us more of your word. Teach us more about how you view us, how you view our children, how you view our families. Father, we pray that we would rightly address our own children. Help us with faith. Help us with hope. Help us with faithfulness to continue discipling them in the home, teaching them faith-filled obedience. Father, that we not separate these things in their minds, but teach them about Jesus and tell them that Jesus came to save, and Jesus came to help us all to be good. God, that we'd understand this. we understand the core things, the basic things, the trunky things. Children seem to pick up on them, but it's, sometimes it's harder for us. Teach us, Father, as children, as your little children, that we'd understand these things better. And believe you, trust you, hold to your promises as little children would. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.